1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Central bankers are hardly known as tech pioneers, yet many of them around the world are keen to launch their own digital currencies. If done well, that might give millions of people access to bank accounts. If done wrong it could cripple private banks and enable government surveillance. And you might not think roadkill is that useful, at least if you're not a vulture, but scientists in Ecuador have found an ingenious use for animals splattered on the tarmac. We look at the benefits of counting carcasses. First up, though, The world's biggest country is still getting bigger, but not for much longer. Yesterday, China released the results of its latest census. It showed that the population had grown by 5% from a decade ago to over 1.4 billion people. Yet it also revealed a sharp drop in births last year, putting it on track to hit its peak population within the decade. That slowdown will force the Communist Party to face up to some serious social and economic challenges.
2: It's a once-a-decade census. Everybody was waiting for the results.
1: Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor.
2: Initially, in fact, the government had said they would be out in early April. More than a month passed. Finally, they released them yesterday. So you know everybody has been scrutinising the numbers both for what they say and for potentially what they're covering up. And
1: what did the Chinese authorities pull out of this and emphasize?
2: The figures were uh, announced at a news conference by Ning Zijia, who's the head of the National Bureau of
1: Statistics.
2: As you would expect from a government official, especially in China, he put a very positive spin on the figures. Uh, he said they show that China remains the world's most populous country, that its population has increased by over 70 million people over the past decade. You know, roughly adding a United Kingdom's worth of people uh, in the past 10 years. He did also acknowledge that China's population growth uh, is continuing to slow down, but that he did not expect the population to peak for some time to come yet. So that was the official spin. But I think if you take a closer look at the data and at the broader trends around the data, it would argue for much more caution in projecting out China's population trends. Simon, is the data
1: trustworthy? Can we, can we rely on these figures?
2: I mean, the first thing to say is that given the fact that it is Chinese data, that it is the world's most populous country, it's difficult to get a perfectly accurate measure of what's going on. And there are also some clear oddities. If you look at the numbers compared to the previous trend, the government basically seems to have found an extra 10 million or so people. Additionally, there were some reports, including in the Financial Times, that China might actually be covering up the fact that the population started to decline last year already. Speaking to demographers, they think that it might not actually be declining, but that the government may have deliberately overestimated the population, not just in this census, but also previously, trying to make an effort to keep the population above the 1.4 billion mark, which seems quite totemic. But I think The trends are absolutely unmistakable. You know, it's clear that China is aging rapidly. And I think the biggest worry for the government right now is how quickly the birth rate seems to be falling. Last year, there were 12 million reported births. That was down 20% from 2019. Partly that was because of the pandemic. But it's really much more broadly about the fact that people in China are having many fewer children than they did in the past. And
1: why are Chinese women having fewer babies?
2: Some aspects are similar to those that are being experienced in other countries. People are are delaying marriage. Many people are deciding that they don't want to get married at all. More particular to China uh, is that the cost of education, the cost of, of buying housing in big cities has absolutely exploded over the past couple of decades. And then, of course, China the longest time had a one-child policy. They relaxed that about five years ago to allow couples to have two children. The government had expected that there might be something like a baby boom thanks to that. In fact, if you speak to people, especially in, in the biggest cities around China, they're really, really reluctant to have a second child because the cost of raising children is simply prohib- prohibitively high. This is the kind of story that you hear again and again from people in Shanghai, where I'm based. Chen Chen is 30 years old, seven months pregnant. She says that young people are under great financial stress that she saved over the last two years to make sure that she can support the child but that she doesn't think that she'll be able to earn enough to support a second.
1: Simon, you also mentioned the question of China's aging population. What did we learn about that from the census?
2: Well, I mean, again, we we know that China is getting older, but it's really striking just the rate at which this is happening. So if you look at the segment of the population aged 65 and over, uh, it was just 9% of China's overall population in 2010, It's closer to 14% now. It's on track to be about 25% in a couple of decades. It basically means that China, if you look at it today, is similar to where Japan was in the early 1990s. Now, you can say that aging is a marker of success. People have longer lifespans. That is very good, very good for families. For the government, though, it is a huge fiscal burden, which is only going to get bigger. There's already forecast that the overall national pension system is basically going to be out of money by the early 2030s in China. There's going to be incredible pressure on individuals and on the government to put more money aside to deal with the costs of aging, to pay for pensions, to pay for underfunded health care, to move money away from grand infrastructure projects, to deal with these kinds of social needs, which are only going to become a lot more pressing. And that sounds like it's going to be bad news for China's economy? Well, it certainly is going to be a big headwind for China's economy. There's no question about that. I think it is also interesting though that if you look under the hood at the census details, there are some positive trends that emerge. So look at the number of university graduates in China. By twenty twenty it was up to two hundred and eighteen million. That was roughly double the number in two thousand and ten. If you look at where people are actually living, the urbanization rate went from less than fifty percent in twenty ten to about sixty-five percent in twenty twenty. So you're looking 65% in 2020. Looking at a population that is more urban, that is better educated. In pure economic terms, that means that although the working age population is going to be shrinking, it's going to be a lot more productive as well. So it's not all bad news for China.
1: And so it sounds like the story isn't just the fact that China's population is shrinking, but that it looks fundamentally different.
2: I think that's right. And I think it's understandable that people outside China are obviously focused on this question of, is the world's biggest, most populous country near its peak? Within China, though, a lot of the fascination with the census is what it reveals about the way that the Chinese map is being redrawn. So apart from the trends about aging and declining births, et cetera, the census also showed the way in which A lot of young people are moving away from the Rust Belt parts of the country, from the northeast, moving to prosperous coastal regions, especially the provinces of Guangdong and Zhejiang. And so increasingly the map is looking like one of areas of great plenty and prosperity and relative youthfulness, and areas that time has forgotten, that are getting older much, much faster. And so that for, I think, people in China is the much more pressing day-to-day concern.
3: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: If
1: digital currencies like Bitcoin are the way of the future, central banks don't intend to be left behind.
4: We are committed to carefully and thoughtfully
2: evaluating the potential costs and benefits of a central bank digital currency for the US economy and payment system. We're launching a new task force between the Treasury and the Bank of England to coordinate exploratory work on a potential central bank digital currency.
0: Central bank must, in my view, anticipate change. This is the starting point for the discussion on whether the euro system needs to introduce a digital euro or not
1: several central banks are imagining their own digital alternatives to the physical dollars, pounds and euros they normally print. If done well, it could lead to a more stable and inclusive economy. But if implemented poorly, it could undermine private banks while giving governments new and invasive means of surveillance.
3: The shift to central bank digital currencies could be extremely significant.
1: Alice Fulwood is The Economist's Wall Street correspondent
3: as important as the evolution of money towards metallic coins or when we started adopting payment cards and credit cards as methods to pay for things 50 years ago.
1: So first of all, what exactly is a central bank digital currency?
3: When most people hear digital currency, they probably will immediately think of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. But in reality, they're not that similar. Central bank digital currencies will be issued by the government, managed and maintained by the government and backed by the full faith and credit guarantees like paper money is now. They also probably won't use the blockchain technology that underpins cryptocurrencies. So they would just be created by central banks and central banks would still maintain sort of exclusive control over their supply. And the way that they would work is that you would effectively hold money in an account directly facing the central bank. And you'd probably use that money in the same way that you use Apple Pay. There might also be a central bank card that you could use to access your central bank cash.
1: So how would my central bank digital cash be different to the digital cash I have in my bank account today?
3: At present, everyone holds most of our money for spending with private banks. And private banks use that money to provide loans for small businesses, mortgages, and all of the credit creation that private banks do. The difference is that your sort of private digital bank deposit that you hold with JPMorgan Chase or Barclays or whoever is actually a promise to pay you the physical cash That the central bank provides. The difference with a central bank digital money would be that that digital deposit was the official money that's backed by the full faith and credit of the government. And so the issuance of a digital central bank money does pose a sort of real risk to this system, because if you could do many of the things that you do with your bank account now, but you could do it using a central bank token, why hold your money with private banks anymore? Why hold as much of it? And this is a real problem that central banks are grappling with. you know, will the issuance of these things suck banks dry of all of their financing?
1: Okay, so central banks would be encroaching on the territory of private banks with a currency that seems to be even more secure than what you hold with your bank now, why can't they just let us keep using our private bank accounts?
3: All over the world, tech firms have begun launching these sort of digital payment platforms. Think of Alipay in China, Grab in Singapore. And I guess the sort of biggest incarnation of this is the sort of theoretical payment solution that Facebook is developing. It wants to launch DM, a token that will be pegged to the dollar. And This is a problem for central banks. Right now, central banks harness the existing banking system to run monetary policy. And if the functions that banks perform migrate from banks into these sort of privately run digital tech platforms, central banks might struggle to manage monetary policy, the economic cycle. They might find it more difficult to inject funds into a system during a crisis. So GovCoins or central bank digital currencies are one way to restore that link. And
1: why, as someone who holds cash, would I rather hold GovCoins than bank money? What's in it for me?
3: Transactions in GovCoins or central bank digital currencies will probably be instant. They will be free. And at the same time, bank accounts are not universal, even in rich countries. They often come with fees attached, which make them expensive for some people. And unavailable to many. You know, there are 1.7 billion people worldwide right now that don't have access to bank accounts and central bank digital currencies would probably be a more universal solution. How
1: far along are central banks towards this goal? Can I get my hands on any digital currency today?
3: Uh, You can if you live in the Bahamas. The Bahamas is the only country that's currently issued a nationwide digital central bank money. It's called the Sand Dollar. But over the past two years, almost all central bankers worldwide have at least begun to research or experiment issuing a central bank digital currency. The ECB has said that it wants to issue a virtual euro by 2025. The British government has launched a CBDC task force and American economists at MIT are developing the framework for a hypothetical digital dollar. China is also reasonably far along. It's rolled out a sort of EU1 pilot. If you open up that app, you see a picture of Mao Zedong, just like you do on the paper money. And that is now in use by half a million people in China and sort of various provinces where they're testing it. And this could all happen quite quickly. So a survey done by the Bank for International Settlements, a sort of club of big central banks, found that within three years, one fifth of the world will live in a country that uses a central bank digital money.
1: What about the politics of all of this? The point of existing digital currencies like Bitcoin was at least in part to create a global currency that was completely beyond the control of any government. This seems to defeat the purpose that inspired that sort of movement towards digital currencies in the first place, doesn't it?
3: it does raise some interesting problems. It's easy to see how central bank digital money could be used as a surveillance tool, especially by governments that don't particularly mind invading their citizens' privacies, like the Chinese government, for example. The problem is that it's not necessarily a choice anymore between using central bank digital tokens and central bank sort of physical cash to do your transactions. It's probably more a choice between using GovCoins or central bank digital money and the private tech payment solutions that are offered by platforms. So the question doesn't necessarily become, oh, would you rather the government did or didn't have access to your transactions data, but who would you rather, the central bank or Facebook?
1: Alice, you're going into much more depth on this subject this week on our sister podcast about business and finance, Money Talks.
3: Yes, we are going to be discussing the future of banking, whether there will be one if central banks issue these tokens. And we're also going to be talking to some people like Jamie Dimon, who is the boss of J.P. Morgan Chase, and he'll be providing some of the counter-arguments for banks to remain a very important linchpin of the system and, you know, why they won't necessarily wither away.
1: Alice, thank you very
3: much. Thank you, Shashank.
0: How do you go about
1: observing an elusive animal population? Scientists sometimes put up camera traps in remote locations to take photos or videos of animals walking by. Others use microphones to record the calling sounds of animals that live there.
4: But a group of scientists in Ecuador took a less intuitive approach. There's a new project which looks at the concept of using roadkill to work out what species are around that might otherwise not be spotted.
1: Matt Kaplan writes about science for The Economist.
4: The researchers behind this project, who are based at the Catholic University of Ecuador, were curious as to just how much roadkill was turning up on the roads that go through the tropical forests in their area. They knew that animals got hit now and again, but they wanted to get an idea as to what the body count was, and more importantly, try to get a feeling as to where the impacts were occurring so that they could try to mitigate the problem where it was at its worst. Matt, how did the researchers go about doing this? This was not just a matter of the researchers getting out of their car and poking things with a stick. They drove up and down 33-kilometer segments of roads once a week for six months. And every time they encountered an animal that had been hit... They stopped, they photographed it, they noted its GPS coordinates, and they tried to identify it as best they could. If they were not able to manage a field identification, they would collect it and bring the carcass back to their labs for further study. But lots of these creatures were either unexpected or completely unknown to the researchers doing the work. And what did they find? They got 445 specimens in total. These ecosystems were in the Ecuadorian national parks of Cambecoca and Sumaco and Napo Galares. Now, a lot of those specimens were possums. 153 possums turned up. This was not unexpected. What was unexpected was that 43 amphibians turned up in their specimen pool. If those were all frogs, that would not have been surprising. But what was mind-blowing was that almost all of them were Sicilians, which are worm-like creatures that often have live birth, and also they slough off flesh in their mouths to nurse their young in a way that's kind of reminiscent of breastfeeding in mammals. Almost nothing is known about them. And the researchers, they were able to identify that a whole bunch of these critters were getting run over And it's not even known if any of them are endangered because there's not enough information collected on them in the first place to identify them as endangered.
1: You mentioned there were also some completely unknown creatures in there.
4: Yeah, that's right. Among the 88 reptiles that they saw, one that turned up, when the researchers found it in the road, they couldn't recognize it. So they brought it back to the lab and when they compared it to other specimens that they had in their collection, they realized that this snake has never been seen before. It's entirely new to science. So they're going to have to work out what it's related to and what its life is like. There was also another species called the northern tiger cat, which is known to be on the brink of extinction. It's impossible to study by ecologists. It seems to be quite resistant to all of the camera traps and everything else that's traditionally used, and yet there it was, dead in the street. It's a bit surprising, isn't it, that looking for dead animals can be so informative? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly grim work, but the reality is that while studying living animals would certainly be preferable to researchers. You've got the animals that are getting hit by traffic right now, and they are collectible, identifiable, and they are providing a lens with which we can see the forest that we didn't otherwise have. Now, that's not to mean that there should not be some sorts of interventions put in place to stop this happening. For example, the researchers were able to identify that at locations where bridges had been built, animals seemed to be hit most often. When the riverbanks get very narrow or disappear entirely where a bridge has been built, the animal comes up onto the road to continue along the riverbank and then gets hit. So crossings could be built, and certainly fences could be built to stop animals from getting into harm's way in the first place. But in the meantime, while you have roadkill, Why not use it? Matt, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...